0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 12. For any of you who may be new, we've been going through the the book of Hebrews for over a year, and we are going to finish out chapter 12 today, and then that means we've only got chapter 13 left. We're kind of down to the final section of this magnificent book of the Bible, we call this series The Sermon That God Wrote because this letter, this this book of Hebrews, was originally a sermon that was preached, and then it was written down, it was transcribed and passed out to other churches, and we don't know who the human author is. The, The human author is anonymous, but we know that all scripture comes from God, and so that's why we called it The Sermon That God Wrote. And let me just say by way of introduction and context, what we're in today is a very thick very dense passage where the author of Hebrews quite literally brings together virtually all of the different motifs and themes and ideas that we've seen over the last 12 chapters into one big kind of grand finale, if you will. If you think about a fireworks show, you know, they shoot off all these different fireworks and at the end he just lets them all go. That's kind of where we are before then chapter 13 is some concluding thoughts. And so uh, there is no way for me to be able to cover in depth all of the ideas that are presented in this uh, section of Scripture, but if anything jumps out at you, if if as we're reading this passage and going through it, you feel like God just stirs something in your heart, I would encourage you, underline it, highlight it, circle it, go back, study it out. You can look through the website for other sermons and resources uh, to help you, Uh, but but today we're going to look kind of through one specific angle, and I'll explain that more in just a minute. As always, I'd like to read the passage, pray, and then spend some time unpacking it together. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast even touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But... See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that your word is given to us to teach us and correct us and help us to grow. God, I pray that you'd send the Holy Spirit right now to be present, uh, to bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds. God, would you help me to only teach that which is in line with your truth? And God, would you, uh, with this, this really dense passage, God, would you help bring to life in our own hearts and minds the things that you want us to uh, take away? And God, in particular, I pray that we would not just think today about Jesus, but we would actually feel deeply in our hearts and in our, in our, in our bodies, God, we would just ex- experience these emotions and these feelings that you point us to in this passage. We pray this all in Jesus' good name and for his sake. And everyone said, amen. Let's talk about emotions a little bit. Okay? There's a spectrum of people, emotional spectrum. Some uh, on one side of the emotional spectrum. You might be a little bit more, we'll, we'll use the word reserved. You tend to be a little quieter. You tend not to wear your emotions on your sleeve. You might be a little harder to read. You might be good at poker. Some of you, other, uh, other people, you wear your feelings on your sleeve. You're what we'll call expressive. And when you're feeling something, you know it, people know it, and the people you're playing poker with probably know it as well, okay? So, so, look, just a quick poll, quick survey, informal survey. Raise your hand if you tend towards the more, we'll say, conservative side of the emotional spectrum. How many of you? Okay? Some of you are nervous to even raise your hands right now. I get that, okay? How many of you are much more on the emotionally expressive side of things? Okay, and you see had her hand up before I was done asking the question. Some of you wanted to hoot and holler as I asked that question. There's kind of a range uh, that we experience as people. The subject of emotions actually are really important in the Bible. Emotions are really important in the Bible. You start reading through the Bible, you come across verses like Nehemiah eight ten that says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Think about that, the joy of the Lord. That's not just the joy that we get from the Lord, that's the joy that belongs to the Lord himself. How many of you know that our Lord is joyful? Psalm 21, the, the, the psalmist says, you make him glad with the joy of your presence, meaning being close to God brings joy. Or the Proverbs that talk about a joyful heart is good like medicine. We also see verses uh, like in Ecclesiastes where it says that a sorrowful, uh, sorry, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face is the heart made glad. Isn't that an interesting verse? that The, the writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, says sorrow is actually good. Because by experiencing sadness, by being honest about the, the brokenness in the world, we actually get to experience greater joy later on. You hear uh, verses like, the Lord will speak peace to his people. How many of you could use some peace in your life? Proverbs ten twenty seven: the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Or Ecclesiastes 3, the classic verse that many of you probably know, it talks about everything. There's a season, a time uh, to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, Feelings are important. Feelings are important to the people of God. The emotions that we express and and how we emote is important to God. Now, let me just talk briefly about emotions in general for a second before we really dive into this passage, because I want us to understand a few things. The first thing we need to understand, there's a little bit of a debate about what emotions really are. And the two main theories are are cognitive theory or non-cognitive theory. And those are just really big or fancy words, really meaning, do we experience emotions and then think about it, like non-cognitive? Are we, are we responding to something? Or, or do we think about things, have beliefs about things, and then respond? I think there's some truth, actually, to both. I think there's some problems with both. If you believe in just pure non-cognitive theory about emotions, then all you are is programmed for response. And your emotions are just what come out of you, and you can't be responsible for them. They're just my emotions. It's just how I feel, and you can't ever take responsibility. So you think, come to cognitive theory. Well, the the problem with cognitive theory is we don't always just sit down and figure out what our emotions are going to be, do we? (laughs) Do you ever just find yourself caught off guard by your emotions? You ever surprised by your emotions? You ever surprised by your wife's emotions?
1: we were surprised by her
0: husband's emotions. I remember having a conversation one time with, with uh, my 10-year-old, and, and we'd had a, there was some sort of a conflict, and there was some discipline, and she needed to talk through some things. We're sitting together on the couch, and it had been, been like an hour, long conversation, and she'd wept, and she'd cried, and we'd snuggled, and then she goes, she kind of brushed it off. And she goes, Dad, and you know how sometimes after, you know, we fight, and then we pray, and we cry, and we snuggle? I just want to cry some more because it feels so good. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, that's just so different from my experience in life. I need to pay closer attention here. I think when it comes to cognitive or non-cognitive emotion, I think that the Bible would very clearly say, yes, our thought life and our our beliefs influence our emotions. But sometimes there's things that just come up and out of us. There's a, a book called Faithful Feelings. The author, Matthew Elliott, I really like how he expresses this. Think about this. He says this. Emotions cannot be forced or had on demand, it is impossible to close your eyes, grit your teeth, and say, I will now have joy, and as a result, feel joyful. (laughs) However, it may be possible to sit down and think about all the good things that you have in your life while experiencing negative emotion, and to change some of your negative emotions to positive ones. You cannot change the emotion by dwelling on the emotion itself, but you can change the emotion by dwelling on and changing the beliefs and evaluations that lie behind it. I think that's really well put. Second thing you need to understand is emotions are culturally shaped. Emotions can be very culturally shaped. Uh, Some of you know, you know, that there are cultures in the world today, in particular in the Middle East or African cultures, where when somebody dies, they literally have a week-long funeral and people publicly mourn and wail in the streets. In fact, there are people known as professional mourners who you can hire to come to your family funeral and cry for you to help get the party kicked off. I'm not making that up. Being around somebody else who's crying can help spur on emotion. Now, some of you were raised in families where, where maybe emotions were on the extremely conservative end of things. We don't really laugh. We don't really cry. We don't really talk much. Oh, you know, yes, it's very sad. Okay, very, moving on. And others of you, then you married somebody who comes from the other opposite end. Anybody ever have that experience? You know, your are two spouses. You come from completely different families when it comes to expressing emotion. So emotions can be culturally shaped. We can have greater or lesser experience of them depending on our upbringing, depending on our culture, depending on our background. And then number three, there are many fallacies about emotions that we believe, and some of them even in the church. So stop me if you've heard any of these ones. Emotions can't be trusted, so they should be avoided. Okay? let's think about that for a minute. Emotions can't be trusted. Can your emotions be manipulated? Absolutely, they can. Have you ever cried at a movie? That was fake. That's not real. My personal favorite of that is when you have a dream that you got into a fight with somebody, and then you wake up and you're mad at them, and you're like, but that was just a dream I had. I have no no reason to even actually be mad. Yes, your emotions can be manipulated. Yes, your emotions are not always the best barometer by which to base your largest decisions in life, but that doesn't mean that we need to shut off our emotions. We are created in the image and likeness of God. God is described as a loving God, as a passionate God, as a, as a joyful God. All of these things come out of being created in the Imago Dei. So we shouldn't avoid emotions. We should seek to have them be shaped in the right way that God wants them to be. Another fallacy. Here's a great one. Love is not a feeling. It's an action. Love is, love is not a feeling. It's what you do. As like the great theologians DC Talk said, love is a verb, Right? Are we getting amen from any of my old school Christian hip-hop fans in the room? Okay, good. Now, here's the thing. Yes, yes, real love is more than a feeling. Yes, real love will lead to action. But love is not just what I do for you. Yeah, there's feeling involved. There's the heart is involved. There's passion involved. There's joy that's involved. Here's one, maybe not so much in our church, but other churches. Here's, Here's one you might hear. Negative emotions are to be avoided at all costs. You should never be sad, you should never be upset, you should never be you know, depressed, you should never, you just avoid all negative emotions. There are, even, there are even many so-called preachers who've made a very lucrative career out of telling you that you can experience every single day like a Friday and just be happy all the time. To which I say nonsense. Jesus was known as the man of what? Sorrows, acquainted with grief. You, 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 you in the pages of the Bible, you will find people, men, women, who are incredibly honest, To not experience any sadness, to not experience any negative emotions is to be uh, either deceived or lying about the nature of the world. The world's a broken place, amen? And there are times when we should feel sadness and sorrow. Last one, here's a a particularly um, common one that I hear, not only from from some Christians, but largely uh, those who are not Christians, emotions are purely neutral. They're neither good nor bad. That would be non-cognitive theory taken to the nth degree. The the, the problem with that is then it absolves you of any sort of responsibility for your emotional reactions. I'm sorry I flipped out at you and ran you off the road with my truck. That's just my emotions. They're neither good nor bad. They're neutral. No, I would actually argue that the Bible says the exact opposite, that our emotions are either. Either positive or negative. They are either building others up in love or they are destructive. They are glorifying to God or they are self-fulfilling. The Bible says things like the, the anger of man does not produce the righteous life that God desires for us. It talks about having righteous anger. Here's, here's the big idea, really, of our passage today and, and, and of what I'm trying to get across to you this. Emotions play a significant role in the life of a Christian. And the closer we draw to Jesus, the more these emotions will be healthy, God glorifying and in proper relation to one another. I want to say that again. I'm going to read it again. Emotions play a significant role in the life of a Christian. Amen. I mean, you can actually help this sermon be better by even like using some of those emotions, right? And the closer here it is. This is the this is the real key point right here. The closer we draw to Jesus, the more these emotions will be healthy. The more they will be God glorifying instead of self glorifying and in proper relation to one another. And let me just say this is so important for us in the United States of America in 2016. Have you seen any out of balance emotions at all recently? Never? Okay. I mean, whether it's I mean <laughs> was a member after the first service came said, you should just go up and endorse both Hillary and Trump and then say that you really love what Colin Kaepernick's doing and then call him an idiot. And then you just have everybody mad and then we could all really get into the Bible. Like, there are so many opinions running rampant right now, uh, social media and otherwise, so many people who are just living in a perpetual state of anger and outrage. And, and there are so uh, many forces at work here to, to try to polarize us, to divide us. How many of you think the world could use some Christians who have been impacted by the gospel and have their emotions seated in a good place where we can be God glorifying? You guys think the world could use some of that? I think this is important for us. So now that I've maybe angered all of you, um, let's do this. We're going to see three predominant emotions in this passage. We're going to see the fear at Mount Zion. We're start Mount Sinai. We're going to see the joy of Mount Zion. There's kind of a mountain, a contrast of mountains there, and then lastly, the confidence of heaven. So let's pick back up in verse 18 and talk about the fear of Mount Sinai. The author of Hebrews writes, You have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them this is an intense moment that the author of hebrews is referring to for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned that means put to death killed with rocks being thrown at it Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses, even Moses, said, I tremble with fear. The author of Hebrews is referring to the meeting between God and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. The the, the name Sinai is not used in this passage, but it's obvious what he's referring to. God has set the people of Israel free. The the plagues have wiped out the Egyptians. They passed through the Red Sea. The Red Sea passed over the army. The, The people have now come into the wilderness and they go to the mountain where God is going to meet with them and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. God says, I've rescued you. I've delivered you. I've adopted you as my people. I love you and now I'm going to teach you how to live. And they come to the mountain And it almost reads, not only this passage, but if you go look back in Exodus, it almost reads like Sinai is behaving like an active volcano. I don't know about you, I've I've been in the vicinity of some volcanoes, and it can be an intimidating thing. It talks about fire shooting out the top of the mountain, and smoke, and the earth is shaking, and the people are all gathered around the mountain, and in, in a great act of courage and bravery, they said, Moses, you go talk to God for us. Moses is the mediator. A mediator is a very important theme in the Scriptures. Moses is the one who goes and and mediates between God and man. But even he, Moses, the one who had the closest relationship with God of any human being that's ever lived, up until this point, Moses says, even I'm afraid. Now, why were they afraid? They were afraid because they were seeing God's awesome power on display. And I want to Point out to you that when I use the word awesome today, I don't mean it like a surfer means it. I mean it in the true sense of awesome, awe inspiring, make you weak in the knees, make you catch your breath. I've said it before, but it's one of my favorite sayings. Nobody goes to the edge of the Grand Canyon, walks up, and says, I am amazing. When you go to the Grand Canyon, you back up a little bit and you, you breathe a little bit deeper and your heart beats a little bit faster because you've just come into contact with something greater than yourself. The Grand Canyon is just one iota, one little smidgen of the glory of God on display. When you think about the mountains, you think about the depths of the oceans that we can't even explore today. For all of our technological advances, we don't even know a fraction of what's in the oceans, much less outer space and the farthest reaches of our solar system and our galaxy and then galaxy upon galaxy. And you you look up at the stars at night and you realize you're not actually looking at stars. You're looking at entire other galaxies filled with stars. And your mind just starts to smoke a little bit at the greatness, the awesomeness of our God this is what Moses has come into contact with her. This is what the people of Israel have come into contact with her. Now, what's their response? Fear. Their response is fear. Now, I want to say a few things about, about fear. And, and, and the big idea about fear is this. There is a right type of the fear of the Lord that we as Christians are to have, and there is a wrong type of fear of the Lord that we as Christians are not to have. When it comes to having fear of the Lord. Let me talk about the wrong type first. If you are a Christian, you have been forgiven of your sins. If if you're a Christian, you have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. If you are a Christian, the Bible would say that when God looks at you, he looks at you as though you were as perfect as Jesus himself. Now that should shock you because I don't know about you, but for myself, I know that I am nowhere near as perfect as Jesus himself. Amen? The Bible's very clear. All have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And what we deserve is to stand before God, the judge, and we deserve to hear the verdict of guilty. But if you're a Christian if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've given him your sin and received his grace, then your verdict was already carried out on Jesus. He took the punishment in your place for your sins, died on a Roman cross, shed his blood that you might have forgiveness, rose again from the dead on the third day to prove that he has power over Satan, sin, and death, and he has said, if you will be united to me, then my Father will look at you, love you, and treat you as though you were as holy and righteous as me. Is that good news to anybody today? So when you, dear Christian, come before God, we don't come with that type of fear. We actually talked about this a few weeks ago. We don't come with fear of punishment. However, how many of you know that in the life of a Christian, there still is a good and right and holy place for a fear of the Lord that's reverence and awe and even taking God seriously, taking God's word seriously, taking who God says he is seriously. You can actually see this if you skip down to verse 25. You see that the author of Hebrews says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, he's talking about Moses, The the people of Israel ignored Moses. They ignored his communication. They received consequences. If, If they didn't escape, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, Jesus? They ignored the message of Moses. They paid the penalty for it. Don't ignore the message of Jesus. Don't ignore the words of Jesus. Dear Christian, do not, I beg of you, do not fear the Lord in the sense of dreading punishment from him. But do fear the Lord in the sense of approaching him with reverence and with awe and recognizing that he is God and we are not. Amen? Amen? I, want, I want us to have that, that distinction. It's so important. Now, notice, however, in our, in our verses we are just looking at, the author of Hebrews says, we, we have not come to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai here is a picture of the old covenant, the old arrangement between God and man. But God said, hey, there's a new covenant. And he uses this idea of Mount Zion as a, as a corresponding mountain. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. These two different mountains. Let's look at Zion in verse 22. He says this, but you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If it looks like a run-on sentence, it's because it is. I've actually checked in the Greek. It's just a big, long, run-on sentence. The author of Hebrews is kind of losing his mind a little bit, as it were, trying to show you, look at all these amazing things that we have. Look at these amazing things that we've been given. Look at this contrast between Sinai and Zion. So let's, let's go through these images briefly. And by briefly, I mean probably not briefly. But let's look at these images, these, these joyful images, and I want you to notice that you have come. Did you notice that it was in the perfect tense, It's in the perfect tense, meaning it already has happened in the past and it has ongoing effects and ramifications for us right now, today. These are not things we're looking forward to. If you are a Christian, these are true of you today. So it says, you have come to, the first one is this, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel, And if you look throughout the Scripture, it's a really important city. We see that the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, was Melchizedek. You guys remember our boy Melchizedek? We talked about him a little bit back in Hebrews chapter 7. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. He came out, he had bread and wine with Abraham, and he was the king of peace, the king of Salem. We saw that Abraham actually went to a place called Mount Moriah. It's right there. It's in the same area where he went to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice before God stopped him and said, no, don't sacrifice your son. I'm going to provide a substitute to be your sacrifice. It's the same area. We see later that when King David became the king over the nation of Israel, he set up his throne in, you guessed it, Jerusalem. This is, the, this is the, the cultural and the political center of the people of God, the people of Israel. And there's this nickname that starts to be used, this nickname of Zion. Zion's an, a word that means a strong tower or a, or a strong fortress. You know how certain cities have nicknames? Like New York is the big apple. Why? I don't actually know, but it is. Or Seattle's the emerald city. That one actually makes sense. These cities have different nicknames. Well, Jerusalem, the nickname is Zion. And you read, especially in the Psalms or in the poetic language, that Zion is where the hope of God's people is. Zion is where God comes to be with his people. Zion is the city that you go to in order to be with God. You get to have a relationship with God. God's in Jerusalem. God's in Zion. But notice what the author of Hebrews does. He reminds us that we don't have a temporary city. We don't have a, an impermanent city. We actually have the city of the living God, the what Jerusalem? Heavenly Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews is saying, hey, Something has happened. Something has shifted. Now that Jesus has come, we no longer have to go to a specific city to be with God. God is everywhere. His glory is covering the earth like the waters fill the seas. The prophet Isaiah says, and the author of Hebrews says, if you are in Christ, you get to have direct access to God Himself. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to go to a building. You don't have to go to a city. You don't have to go to a person. You, Christian, have access to Mount Zion. The people under the old covenant had to go through their mediator, Moses, but under the new covenant, our mediator, Jesus, has flung the doors wide open and says, come on in. Come spend time with your heavenly father. Come be in relationship with him. This is joyful stuff, is it not? This is joyful stuff. Number two, he says, innumerable angels innumerable. You can't even count them. So picture a a massive crowd of angels, servants of God, in festal gathering. I looked it up in the Greek. That's a fancy way of saying party clothes. (laughs) They've got their party clothes on. Is this joyful language? Is this happy? This is not, we're coming to the mountain and there's a trumpet sounding and gloom and they're covering their ears they don't want to hear. No, we got angels and they're dressed to party. So we get to come to the celebration. We get to, the, we get to come and, and, and experience something massive. And, and I looked, uh, in one of the commentaries, they pointed out that this word is not used, festal gathering, this word is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only used here. But in other books, you know, non-scriptural books, this word is used of big celebrations like the Olympics. So when thousands and thousands of people get together, it's festal gathering. It's party time, right? Imagine century link field on opening day right just a big pile of god's angels and god's people coming together to celebrate is this joyful i think this is joyful number 3 the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven this this one for me really jumped out because talking about being enrolled in heaven, the idea of of God knows who his people are. God knows who his children are. He knows them by name. God has a list. If you're a Christian, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the the, the book of Revelation talks about. Your name is written down. God knows you. But it says the firstborn, the assembly of the firstborn. Now, again, I'm, I'm doing a little word study, and I'm not trying to say any of this to impress you, but this is something that I found absolutely fascinating. The word firstborn for us in English, we, the way we pluralize firstborn is we just leave it alone. Makes a lot of sense. Great system, English. But when you look in the Greek, that is plural. Firstborns. Now, according to common sense, how many firstborn can there be? One. Yeah, you guys are, you guys are nervous. I'm not trying to trick you. There can only be one firstborn. The Bible would say that Jesus is the firstborn of God. The, the famous verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, His one and only Son, His monogamous Son, the, the utterly unique Son of God. That's Jesus. Jesus occupies the position of the firstborn. But, but what Jesus Himself has said is that when you trust in Him, when you place your faith in Him, when you receive His salvation, you receive His forgiveness, and you receive His grace, that you get treated like a firstborn son. This doesn't hit us as hard as it would have people in this culture because the firstborn got twice as much money in the inheritance. And the firstborn got to sit at the, the special prominent seat of the table. The firstborn had extra honor and dignity. They got to go first through the buffet line at wherever you go for a buffet, right? They, the, this, this person had a place of special dignity and honor. And what Jesus is saying is, if you trust in me, you get to be a firstborn as well. Young, old, rich, poor, male, female, black, white, it doesn't matter. You get treated the way that Jesus himself gets treated. Is that happy? Is that good? I hope somebody else is excited, because I'm really excited. All who are Christians get the firstborn treatment. Number four, we have come to God the judge of all. And just right now, in some of your minds, you heard that record needle scratch sound, like, oh man, it was so happy up until this point. Actually, this is very joyful as well. Let me explain why. Uh, we already explained the idea that, that when we as Christians come before God, he's not our judge. We don't now relate to God as judge. The judgment, the sentence was carried out on Jesus. We now relate to God as our loving father. But God still is the judge. He's the judge of all. And with that language of judge, we, we often think of it in, in terms of punishment, and that's, that's true, but there's more to it than that. A judge is someone who has to sort things out. A judge is someone who has to figure out what's right, what's wrong, messy situations. You ever had a messy situation? You ever had somebody come into a messy situation and try to help and then they just make it worse? You ever had somebody come into a messy situation and they actually were able to really help and untangle the knots? That's what we're talking about here. We who are Christians get to come before God who is the judge of all. And the joy here is that he's the one who's gonna sort it out. You know, we're all looking for a political leader who can untangle the knots that we've made in this country. We're looking for governors and presidents and politicians who are going to solve all of our problems and really lead America forward or whatever. But listen, there are some knots that no human being is able to untangle. They have to be untangled by the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. This is why it's good news that we get to come to God who is the judge of all. It means he's going to sort it out. It doesn't mean we're lazy or passive or inactive. It just means that we don't have to have our hopes dashed when yet another politician fails to fix the world. God's the judge of all. God's the one who is uniquely qualified to untangle all of the knots that we've created. Amen? Number five, we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Wow. Hey, that's you, Christian. Just let that weigh on you for a minute. The righteous made perfect. How many of you would like to, you know, introduce yourself to somebody? You go visit a new community group this week. Yes, hello, how's it going? My name's name John. I'm righteous made perfect. <laughs> it's a little, a little presumptuous maybe. But listen, if you're a Christian, again, your status, the declaration over you is you're righteous. You're righteous. Oh yes, you're still a work in progress. Yes, you're a hot mess. We all know that. But, but when God looks at you, again, the status is you're righteous. And he's, he's called you into a place of perfection. He's working on you. God's not done with you. God's not given up on you. I don't care how, uh, especially how old you might be. Some of you, as you get into later years of life, you might think, man, I've been this way forever. I've struggled with this sin for a long time. You know what? To the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years. It doesn't matter if you struggle with the same sin for 20 hours or you know, 20 years. God is faithful to complete the work that he starts in you. Don't give up on His work in your life. Walk in step with the Spirit. You are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And here we are. We're part of it. We're part of this assembly. Number six, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We spent a lot of time unpacking the idea of covenant. Again, I, I don't have an entire extra sermon to devote to that, but covenant is the, the terms of arrangement in a relationship. How are we going to relate together? Under the old covenant, God gave this old covenant under Moses, under the law. It was external. It was it was based on, on, on our performance. It was ultimately based on God's grace, but God gave the law to show that what was really needed was a deeper law, the law of Christ. And now under the new covenant, if you're a Christian, the promise is you actually have God's law written on your heart, and His Holy Spirit is at work within you to transform you and change you from the inside out so that you want to obey his law. Is that good news? We've come to this new covenant. We've come to Jesus, the mediator. The only way we're going to relate to God is through Jesus. I I love uh, all of you in this room, but some of you have bought into this cultural lie that there are many paths to God, there are many ways to relate to God, but Jesus was very black and white about it. He says, I am the way. If you are going to relate to God the Father, you must come through me. Jesus is the mediator. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. It's only through him. And if you are a Christian, you've come to him. You've, You've stumbled across... The doorway to life. You've stumbled across. The only way that you're gonna know that your sins are forgiven and that you're right in relationship with God. Oh, you you might have been seeking for God, but guess what? God's the one who found you. You were stumbling around in darkness, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. God reached down, went zap, made you alive in Christ Jesus. And there you are. You've come to Jesus, the mediator. Let that fuel your joy. And number seven, we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This this was my uh, my number two most impacting thing just from studying this this week. The blood of Abel, you guys remember the story of Cain and Abel? Early, early, early in the Bible, Cain murders his brother Abel. And the Bible says that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. God heard Abel's blood crying out, justice must be served. Justice vengeance, restitution. The scales are uneven. There must be an equaling of the scales. We're very concerned with with justice, even right now. Justice is a big topic of conversation in our culture. Justice is good. But friends, you know what's even better than justice? Mercy. Grace. Love. Forgiveness. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. The blood of Jesus cries out, mercy. Mercy forgiveness. If you've, if you've placed yourself under Jesus, if you've placed yourself under his blood, his blood cries out, you're forgiven. Not that justice has been served. Justice has been served by Jesus. But now more than that, you've been given grace. You've been given the gifts of heaven. You've been given the treasures of heaven. Friends, I don't know about you. This is some joyful stuff. William Lane, uh, one commentator, summarizes it this way. He says, Every aspect of this vision provides encouragement for coming boldly into the presence of God. The atmosphere at Mount Zion is festive. The frightening visual imagery of blazing fire and darkness and gloom fades before the reality of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The cacophony of whirlwind and trumpet blast and the sound of words is muted and replaced by the joyful praise of angels in festive, festal gathering. The trembling congregation of Israel gathered solemnly at the base of the mountain is superseded by the assembly of those whose names are permanently inscribed in the heavenly archives. An overwhelming impression of the unapproachability of God is eclipsed in the experience of full access to the presence of God and of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Friends, if Sinai was marked by fear, Mount Zion is marked by joy. And so I ask you, Christian, how's your joy? I asked you a minute ago, how's your fear of the Lord? Do you have right and proper fear of the Lord? Well, now I'm asking you, how's your joy? Are you known for being a person of joy? Are we known for being people of joy? I believe that Christians ought to be the most joyful people there are. I believe we ought to be the most, I think we ought to throw the best parties, have the best celebrations because we know that the end is secure. And that's where we're going to close in this passage, verse 26. Looking forward to what still is to come, the future. At At that time, his voice shook the earth. Talking about at that time, Israel, Mount Sinai. God spoke, things shook. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me just make a couple of observations about this. First of all, he's quoting from the prophet Haggai, and he's saying this, yet once more I'll shake things. Yes, things shook with Israel at Mount Sinai. The ground shook, the earth shook, the people shook. He says that was just the beginning stages. In the future, things are really going to shake. And when I shake things, God is saying, only those things that are solid are going to last. Last summer, how, you probably saw this. You know, hopefully, you saw it. It was very, um, very widespread. The New Yorker magazine wrote an article about the Pacific Northwest, and it was called something about when the big one hits. You guys remember that article? Some of you have not slept well since you read that article. It's it's been a whole year. We need to we need to help you have some peace. But what it talks about is there's this, we're overdue for a large earthquake in the Pacific Northwest, and when it happens, all of these buildings that were built before earthquake codes have been updated and such, uh, we're just going to see massive decimation. The idea is this. I think the author of Hebrews is drawing on a little bit of that imagery. A shaking is coming. There will be a day... When Christ Jesus returns, there will be a day when a final shaking happens, and only that which is permanent, only that which is of the kingdom of God, is going to last. The kingdom of America isn't going to last. Kingdoms of Rome, Greece, Babylon, they didn't last. Kingdoms of this earth, whatever nation you may be from or visiting, they won't last. Human institutions, human structures, human inventions, those things, that's not what's going to last. That which is going to last is that which is of the kingdom of God. You guys see anything shaking even in our world right now? Sometimes it feels like everything's shaking, doesn't it? What's not shaking? What's not experiencing trial? What's not experiencing hardship? And that's just corporally. I'm not even talking about you individually. What's going on in your life, your health, your finances, your relationships, your community, your friendships, your marriage? Some of you are experiencing all sorts of shaking and you're, 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 you're at a crossroads. Do you give place to anxiety or do I give these fears to the Lord and experience His peace? The word confidence you know, we have confidence that, that we're in a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I think we could also use the word peace. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in John 14. He says this, peace I leave with you. This is Jesus' final prayer with his disciples before he goes to the cross, dies, raises again, and then ultimately ascends back into heaven. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then he says this, it's, it's, not, it's not peace the way that the world gives it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither Let them be afraid. You know what the world's peace is? Distraction or false promises? Oh, everything is going to get better. It gets better. What if it doesn't? But if you're a Christian, you are part of an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. It does not Ultimately, matter in the ultimate sense who gets elected president this fall. It does not matter what happens on the stock market. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what happens in your relationships. It doesn't matter what happens to your health. If you are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Now, that doesn't mean that things won't be painful or sad. I'm not talking about some sort of a Zen, just, oh, nothing is ever a problem. I'm not talking about that. That's silly. What I am talking about, though, is despite the highs and lows of life, despite the emotions that come and go, you, dear Christian, can have peace and can have confidence that what God says is true and that this world is heading to a conclusion. And if you're a Christian, guess what? You're going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb and you're going to spend eternity in the presence of God, free from sin and death and destruction for all of eternity. That's good news, amen? That ought to give you some confidence. That ought to give you some peace. And then you notice that the author of Hebrews concludes with these three more emotions. I had the three big ones, but he snuck these other three ones in. Since he did it, I'm just gonna do it. I'll just sneak these in real quick. He says, let us us be grateful for receiving this kingdom. Are you grateful? Are you thankful? Thankful that Jesus is who he says he is? Thankful that his kingdom is secure? He says, let us offer worship, acceptable worship to God. Worship is not just singing. We, we, often, some, we often call the, the singing part, we say, let's worship. Listen, worship is how you live your life. Yes, singing is part of worship, but worship is how you live your life, how you, how you give your finances, how you care for the poor, how you treat your neighbor, how you love someone with whom you're uh, in disagreement with. That's worship, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, as the Apostle Paul says. Let's worship God. Let's give him our very best in response. And then he says, let's do this with reverence and awe. For our God's a consuming fire. Do you have reverence for God? Do you take him at his word or do you say, well, I think God should be more like this and you fashion God in your own image? Let me just close with this couple of questions. What gets your emotions running? What gets you fired up? What gets you excited? Some of you this afternoon, service is done, you're ready to go home and you're going to, Flex those emotions and test them out this afternoon as the Seahawks just embarrass the Miami Dolphins, right? Some of you are ready. Now listen, there is absolutely nothing wrong with celebrating and partying and having fun and expressing emotion over a football game. Just please remember that that is a fraction of a taste of the party that awaits us in eternity with Jesus. May your your buffalo wings be Christ-focused this afternoon, okay? I mean that in all sincerity. What gets your emotions going? What what do you fear? When it comes to God, do you, do you fear Him properly or do you still fear punishment? What gets you joyful? What gets you joyful? What gets you excited is the fact that your name is written in the records of the firstborn of heaven. Does that excite you? Or are you just like, kind of, well, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. I i Yay. <laughs> are you confident? Give peace? Or when you read the next article about what doom is coming to America when the political candidate on the opposite side of the aisle from you wins? Are, are, you, are you just ruined and your day is gone and you're mean to your kids and you kick the neighbor's dog? Like, where's your peace? Where's your confidence? I'm, I'm being hyperbolic but not very much. See, the, the, the closer we draw to Jesus, the more we understand the gospel, the more our emotions will get pointed in the right direction in the direction of Jesus. And the more we'll be able to have these different emotions in the right proportion. Again, something I think that our world desperately needs. For those of you who are not Christians, I want to invite you into this place of having a right and proper fear of the Lord, to know that your sins are forgiven, to know that you're loved by God. And that you might have not only your mind and your your life, but even your emotions transformed by him. And so I invite you into that today. I invite you to respond to him. You don't have to pray a fancy prayer. A fancy prayer. However God invites you to respond, God, I've sinned. I know I deserve punishment, but you have offered me grace and I'm taking you up on that offer. Prayer doesn't have to be fancy. It just needs to be sincere. And I want to call all of us now to a time of response. We're going to respond uh, in a variety of ways. The first way we're going to respond is to the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest, please don't feel obliged to give anything, but, but this is something that we're going to do as worship to God. This is part of our worship to God. And notice this, this verse, I have it up on the screen. We read it most every week. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says that God loves a cheerful giver. That's an emotional word, isn't it? So like as you, you know, text to give or as you drop a check in the offering, just go, yeah, and just cheerfully give, right? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Don't give with, with guilt or compulsion. Just give out of joy. That's the, that's the, that's the point. Let me read a few discussion questions, some things that help us this week in our community groups as we talk and speak of, uh, of these things. Number one, biblically speaking, what does a right fear of the Lord look like and how, what does it not look like? How can we help each other know and experience the right type? Number two, do you experience this closeness with God that the passage says that we have? If not, what might be holding you back? Number three, of those seven things listed that we have come to, Which ones stand out the most to you? Which ones maybe you struggle to understand, need some further explanation? Which ones give you the most joy? And then number four, things in our lives and in our world seem to be constantly shaking. And how does knowing that we're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken give you hope and confidence and peace? And then a couple things to pray about because we desire to be a, a church that prays. Pray that God would help us as Christians to fear him in the right way experience his joy and to have confidence in his plans for the future. And number two, pray for those who are not Christians, that they would come into this close relationship with the God that is described in these verses. We're also going to respond through a celebration of the Lord's table. This is communion. I'll say two things about this. Number one, uh, this is for Christians. And so if you are not a Christian, I would invite you to abstain. And just reflect on this, or, or even better, just give your sins to Jesus. Become a Christian and join us at the table today. And it's, it's for Christians. If you're a guest or a visitor, you're welcome to join us at the table if you have trusted in Jesus. While they're passing out the elements, I'll invite you to hold on to those for a moment. We'll take this together. And then I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 to reflect on what we're about to celebrate here. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, there's an emotion, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he has a warning. He says to examine yourself. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For, for some of you, maybe this is an opportunity to say, God, have my emotions just, just been running amuck? They've not been grounded in the truth of the gospel? Maybe this is a moment for you just to repent and pray about that. Others of you, maybe you need to repent of your lack of emotions. I mean that. Maybe you're, maybe you're just kind of numbed out and you're not feeling. God, help me to feel. Help me to express that. In a minute, I'll pray. You're welcome to take the, the elements on your own. The band's going to lead us in song. Friends, singing is an incredible opportunity to express Christ-honoring emotion, is it not? So as we begin to sing, I'll invite you to, to clap and to lift your hand. I mean, think about lifting your hands, right? Somebody scores a touchdown, everyone's like, whoa, and they throw their hands up, Right? We've got the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to celebrate. Let's lift our hands sometimes. And celebrate Him and, and worship Him. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you. I thank you that that you have. God caused us to be emotional beings. God, forgive us for the times that we either uh, neglect that gift that you've given to us or allow our emotions to rule us in a in a way that's not healthy or godly. God, I pray that we would have our emotions more deeply grounded in the gospel that we would remember Jesus' death, his resurrection. God, your your love for us. And now as we take the bread and, and drink of the juice, and as we lift our voices in song, we would do so in acceptable worship to you, as we just read in our passage. May all we do be done for the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.